Well, if you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, please open it with me once again to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one around you in a pew, so please look together with us. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning as we continue our study in this epistle of 1 Timothy as part of a larger series in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. 1 Timothy chapter 3 begins this way, it is a trustworthy statement If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Father, we open your word once again. You have told us, Father, that a significant aspect of the ministry of the church is to give attention to the public reading of Scripture and to preach the Word. And so we do, Father, in obedience to You, listening for Your voice. In Christ's name, Amen. No one is in the ministry very long when both by personal experience and through contact with other pastors and churches one learns the importance of what Paul is about to address here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I have known pastors who have taken their own lives, leaving their churches devastated, their families destroyed. I have known of pastors who have left their wives for other women, sometimes women in the church, with the same results of devastation and destruction. I have known elders so covetous for power that they have been perfectly willing to divide the church of Christ in order to obtain it. And I have heard stories of physical fights breaking out in church meetings because of elders who were, as Paul puts it here, pugnacious. But... I love the word but. I've also known pastors and elders, they're the same thing by the way, who have sacrificed much for their Lord and His people. I have known men of great humility and love. Men who are selfless and wise. I am a realist who understands the toll that sin has taken on all men, but who also believes in the power of the Gospel to deliver believing, humble, repentant sinners from their sin and to instill a nobility and godliness of character. I have seen it. And I have known men that caused me 
to aspire to the, that character more perfectly than I do. Church leadership can attract people with mixed motives. Sometimes with clearly sinful motives. Some see spiritual leadership as a place of power and prestige. The opportunity to be looked up to and, and respected because of the office that they hold and, and experiencing that. In regard to the wrong man, it can make the head swell. That's why Paul writes to us, for instance, in verse 6, not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. But Paul understood that though times change, people don't. I say all this to emphasize that the Christian ministry and leadership within the church is without question primarily an issue of character. One's authentic spirituality and Christian character is everything in church leadership. With some common sense qualifications, it's an axiom that what we are as leaders in microcosm the congregation will become in macrocosm over the years. And that is most certainly true. If one man's ministry extends for a significant period of time in one given place. There are always individual exceptions, but it is generally true that if the leadership is word-centered, the church will be word-centered. If the leadership is sincere, the people will be sincere. If the leadership is kind, the church will be kind. Sadly, the opposite is also true. Unloving, narrow, stingy leaders beget unloving, narrow, stingy churches. You understand why my brother and I need your prayers. Constantly. This concern for one's character and the life which flows from it looms large in this entire epistle of 1 Timothy. And it, it peaks here in the third chapter. You'll remember, we've stated probably every message so far in 1 Timothy. We've spoken about the purpose statement of the epistle found there in chapter 3, verse 15. Paul's stated purpose in writing to his disciple Timothy, his son in the faith, was so that he might know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy is about church order and conduct. But that purpose cannot be separated from a deeper purpose which Paul stated at the beginning of chapter 2 where Paul describes God as our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And it was this divine saving desire that informed and energized Paul's instruction about lifestyle in verses 1 through 10 that believers might 
must lead quiet lives, pray without disputing, women must dress modestly. And then in verses 11-15, through 15, that desire likewise informed his teaching about women's roles in the church as we live out the created order. And now, in chapter 3, verses 1-7, to it animates his directives about the necessary character and characteristics of Christian leadership. All this has to do with gospel mission. Because if the church is doing, if the church is what it ought to be, it will pursue God's desire for all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul wanted the church to have leaders whose lives would grace the church and adorn the gospel before the world. As followers of Christ, we cannot settle for less. I've spoken several times through our study of 1 Timothy about the difficulty that a preacher finds in preaching certain passages. Some are just difficult because the text is difficult. You're trying to find out really what's going on. There's, there may be issues in the language. It, 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 it motivates the preacher to dive deep into the Word, to try to understand before he tries to proclaim the truth of the Word. There are other passages that are difficult to preach because they're just saturated in controversy. They deal with issues that are difficult in our 21st century world. There are other passages that are difficult for a different reason, like this one. Because when I read 1 Timothy 3, verses 1-7, through it's a mirror. And I don't always see the reflection that I want to see. It's difficult because I know that as I'm preaching this passage, I shouldn't say I know. I imagine that there are some of you who are going to be comparing Joe and I to what we're seeing here. But the task of the pastor and the preacher is to proclaim the Word. No matter what. That's why we preach as we do. It's why we preach through books of the Bible. So that I can't skip over those things that are not comfortable. So let's see what Paul has to say. He begins by first affirming leadership as a noble aspiration. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And the apostle clearly hopes that certain men will aspire to leadership. The literal sense of oversight being a beautiful task which is what it literally means. A fine work. A beautiful task. This conveys even more of Paul's feelings. Such aspiration in a man is a lovely thing. How beautiful it is 
when a man sets his heart on the virtues essential to spiritual leadership. He who would play a leader's part on a noble task has set his heart. Spiritual leadership, Paul says, that is, to be an elder in the local church is a fine work. It's an excellent pursuit. At the same time, an overweening desire for position is reason for automatic disqualification. Such ambition indicates that a man does not understand either the job or what will be required personally. See, there's a proper desire and there's an improper desire. I'm reminded of that old Groucho Marx quip, I would not want to join any country club that would have me as a member. There's a recognition there that there should be standards. And if those standards are not adhered to, that organization, whatever it may be, is, will not be what it ought to be. Something similar is going on here. There should be a humility attached to the aspiration. If the aspiration is such that if one were given truth serum, he would say, this church would be lucky to have me as an elder. That would be an aspiration that disqualifies. But if having, having taken that serum, the man would say, I can't imagine that anyone would think me fit for this office. But if they do, I would count it an honor to serve God's people in this way. Then that's a holy aspiration. That's the aspiration Paul is talking about. That said, Paul goes on to list the qualifications of spiritual leaders, here called overseers, which is a synonym. It could just as accurately be termed bishop, pastor, elder. Like most, if not all, of the lists we find in the writings of Paul, what follows is not exhaustive but representative. Those things which perhaps should be most obvious in a man's life are here. And if these things are here, then we can fairly safely assume the rest of his life is in order as well. Paul begins with a reputation. An overseer then must be above reproach. This refers to his observable conduct. This apparently summarizes all of the following qualifications because we, we, we see that the final qualification is also about reputation, though specifically one's reputation outside of the church. Such should be his reputation that if the elder's name were posted for comment, no one would be able to bring a substantiated charge against him in respect to anything in this list. Those are high qualifications indeed. This is why whenever we believe that God may be raising a man up to join in the eldership of our church, we present that man's name to the congregation and we give time. And we ask, come, talk to us about your 
experience with this man? What have you seen in his life? Do you agree with us that this man meets these qualifications? He must be above reproach. His marriage is an issue, Paul says. He is to be the husband of one wife. Literally, a one-woman man. Winston Churchill once attended a formal banquet in London where the dignitaries were asked the question, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? And everyone was curious as to what Churchill would say. He was seated next to his beloved wife, Clemmie. When it was finally his turn, he was the last respondent, and he rose and gave his answer. He said, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. He was a very clever man, and also a very devoted man. He was a one-woman man, despite his other issues. At least he had that one right. The standard here for elders is extraordinarily high, but not in the way it is so often misinterpreted. The common misunderstanding is quantitative. And a man can have only one wife. And so if he's been divorced, um, remarried, then he cannot be an elder. But it goes further than that. The fact is that a man can be married to one woman his entire life and not be a one-woman man. The correct sense here is not quantitative, but qualitative. The man is truly a one-woman man. There are no other women in his life. He is totally faithful. He does not flirt. There are no dalliances. If the only reason a man has not stepped out on his wife is because he's afraid of the consequences, he's not a one-woman man. As George Knight says, he is a man who, having contracted a monogamous marriage, is faithful to his wedding vows in heart and mind as well as action. The bar is set high. And no cleverness, no ancient or postmodern verbal sleight of hand can change that. Paul goes on to talk generally about the idea of self-mastery. He mentions three qualities next. He says that the one who aspires to this fine work is to be temperate, prudent, and respectable. Here you have this triad of self-mastery. Temperance means clear-headed. Prudent means self-controlled. Respectable refers to how other people see you. It's all summarized by Solomon who says in Proverbs, better is he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You have control over your own life. You have control over your own spirit. Or do you allow certain aspects of your flesh to control you and to drive you? The temperate, prudent respectability that Paul mentions here is essential and required for every leader Paul likewise says to Titus that it is a necessity for leadership. And it is possible with God's help. Because God provides what Paul refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self 
self-control. It's a self-mastery, but it comes from God. The elder must be mastered by God. And then there's the matter of his ministry. We're given a twofold description in this regard. The elder, the one who aspires to the office of overseer, is to be hospitable and able to teach. As a young man, the missionary E. Stanley Jones experienced the ultimate in hospitality when he was preaching his first evangelistic service among the Appalachian poor in Kentucky. And the meetings were held in a schoolhouse. And Dr. Jones describes it this way, At the schoolhouse I was invited to stay with a man and his wife, and when I arrived, I saw there was one bed. The husband said, You take the far side. Then he got in, and then his wife. In the morning we reversed the process. I turned my face to the wall as they dressed, and they stepped out while I dressed. That was real hospitality. <laughs> I have slept in palaces, but the hospitality of that one-bed home is the most memorable and the most appreciated. The word hospitality means love of strangers. It's a telltale virtue of the people of God. Paul told the Roman church to contribute to the needs of the saints and to show hospitality. To show that means to pursue, chase it. Sometimes it speaks of this chase being a strenuous pursuit. Christians, and especially leaders, are not simply to wait for opportunities for hospitality, but to pursue them, and they are to do it, Peter says in 1 Peter, without grumbling. Hospitality is all over the New Testament. And the writer of Hebrews offers an enchanting motivation. He says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Yipes. Angels. Those are God's thoughts on hospitality. It's, that, that, that quality then is paired with the ability to teach. The one who aspires to this fine work must be able to teach. This is a distinctive of the ministry of the elder. When we look at the qualifications for the office of deacon next week, we're going to see a lot of similarities. But the ability to teach will not be found there. It is only here. It doesn't mean that deacons can't teach. Obviously, some of them are gifted teachers. We have some in our, in our fellowship. But in order to be an elder, one must be able to teach. Paul gives it fuller expression in his epistle to Titus where he says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We're going to see in chapter 5 that the responsibilities of the elder in the local church are essentially twofold. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 17, that the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, 
especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So the job description for the elder in the local church is to rule and to teach. And indeed, part of the authority to rule comes from teaching authority. It's the teaching ministry which forms the church and moves the church along in the same direction. So there is the ruling ministry. This ministry not to be performed with an iron fist. It is to be performed with grace and love according to the Word and submitting to the Word. It is, to use a phrase that most of us are familiar with, a servant leadership. That's to be characteristic of the ruling ministry in the church. But Paul's focusing here on the teaching ministry. And although many teach, there is a teaching ministry that is unique to the eldership. We spoke of it last week when we said from verse 12 that teaching and authority go together. The elders are the teaching authority within the local church. Others may teach as well, but in regard to the faithfulness of all the teaching that goes on within the church, the elders are responsible for its oversight. Politicians are notorious for putting the responsibility for things that go wrong on other people. You'll remember Harry Truman had a saying on his desk, the buck stops here. And so often it seems like leaders should have a sign on their desk which says, the buck stops there. Elders don't have that luxury. They are to be able to teach, and that includes being able to discern what is good and bad in the teaching of others. Because the role of the elder is to protect the flock of God from the wolves that want to come in and destroy that flock. That demands that elders be students of the Word. A man who can communicate it, and when necessary, a man who can defend the faith once delivered to the saints. Paul continues to speak of the control of this kind of man. Control in regard to things that are not in themselves sin, but can become occasions for sin through abuse. Paul says that one who aspires to this office must not be addicted to wine. Literally not lingering beside wine. Anyone who longs for those wonderful, pure days of the apostolic church longs for an illusion. It was a difficult time for the church. You read the New Testament epistles and you find that very early on heresy is already coming into the church and there's all kinds of moral issues taking place within the church. And in the church at Corinth, some Christians were getting into the habit of getting drunk at the Lord's table. Can you imagine? Maybe Joe and I should you know, walk up and down the aisle and Make sure nobody's got a little flask in their... Uh, yeah. Paul repeats this warning to deacons in verse 8. Not addicted to much wine. 
And again, in his epistle to Titus, chapter 1, verse 7. Now understand the principle being put forth here. Whether it's alcohol or any other permissible thing, the elder needs to know when to stop. Ephesians 5.18 provides the principle, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That is, be controlled by the Spirit. Not by anything else. And you can substitute all kinds of other things for wine in that verse in Ephesians chapter 5. The point is, we are controlled by the Spirit of God. That's what being filled with the Spirit means. And we are not to allow any substance or any person or anything to control us instead of the Spirit. Paul goes on then to talk about a temperament. There's another aspect of control. Control in regard to wine is logically followed by a prescription for another aspect of control in the elder. Not pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable. When we were living in Detroit many years ago, before coming here to Red Mills, there was an incident in one of the inner city churches that made the news. It was on every local channel, complete with video. A literal, physical brawl among church members that came out from the building into the street. And it was instigated by two elders who were each vying for control. The Greek translated not pugnacious is literally not a giver of blows. And that corresponds obviously to peaceableness. Gentleness is the elders approved style. And praise God for it. I would hate to anticipate our regular elders meetings as you know, situations where Joe and I are going to get into it and be wrestling around on the floor before long. But this was Jesus' style as well. He was gentle and lowly in heart. It's also a fruit of the Spirit. Paul describes this requirement fully in his second letter to Timothy, where he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. And why? If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. What's the goal of gentle correction? It's not to win. It's not to maintain power. It is by the grace of God to bring one who differs to repentance and to restore unity. Paul addresses money in this regard as well. Specifically, one's attitude toward it. One must be free from the love of money. 
Oz Guinness was more to the point. If a man is drunk on wine, you throw him out. But if he is drunk on money, you'll make him a deacon. And it's also American, isn't it? If a man has lots of money, that must mean God has blessed him. Never mind what Scripture says about it. It must mean he's smart. Mm. It must mean he's a good manager, a practical man, that he has power. He's got influence. When we hear things like that, we should be asking one one word question. Really? Paul speaks so explicitly to the contrary. 1 Timothy chapter 6 Verses 9 and 10, Paul says this, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now note, what Paul says, because it's not what everybody thinks he says. He doesn't say money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. It's an attitude. It's a heart issue. And again, as Paul writes to Titus in chapter 1, verse 7, He repeats this to Titus in a slightly different way. He says that the one who uh, has that desire for the eldership should not be fond of sordid gain. The point is not whether one is rich or poor. The point is not whether one necessarily has some kind of financial gift. Everything he touches turns to gold. We need that kind of guy dealing with the finances of the church. The disqualification for church leadership is one who is a love, has a love of money. One can be wealthy and not be a lover of money. But the truth is, it is hard to have a lot of money and not love it. It's also hard to be poor and not love money. Whatever the case, one cannot love money and be qualified for church leadership. Paul then moves on to the area of family. And as he details these last three qualifications, he becomes more descriptive. Regarding the elder's home, he says in verses 4 and 5 that he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? This principle was especially cited because churches in those days met in homes and very often in the homes of elders. And the word translated household here is oikos, literally house. It's the same word used down in verse 15 as a metaphor for the church. So the man who fails at the family house is thereby disqualified from leading at the other house, the church. 
The common sense application is straightforward, and its disregard has brought great trouble to God's people over the centuries, beginning with old Eli. This man must have a degree of maturity attached to him. We're told in verse 6 that he cannot be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The language is expressive here. Conceited means filled with smoke. In our day we say he's full of hot air. He lives in a fantasy land of self-regard. Humility seasoned by experience is an indispensable qualification for leadership. And we're back to his reputation again. The final qualification takes us full circle back to the matter of one's reputation where we began. This time, looking at those who are outside the church, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This is literally speaking of being a beautiful witness. He must have a beautiful witness with outsiders. And indeed, he will if his reputation is above reproach. If his self-mastery is evidenced by his being sober-minded, controlled, temperate, prudent, respectable, if he's hospitable, if he's able to teach, if all of these other qualifications are there, verse 7 won't be a problem. So much is at stake, brothers and sisters. What our leadership is in microcosm, the church will become in macrocosm. And what the church is has everything to do with gospel and mission. Many have tried to set aside the pastoral epistles as standards of a bygone age. As we read things like this, we can hear how they clash with our postmodern age. That is all the more reason for God's people to take His message seriously. We need to raise the bar and we need to keep it there. We need to see leadership as a unique ministry. Something that carries with it for the individual great reward as well as great burden and hardship. But for the church, the office of elder can make or break the body of Christ. I don't even want to think about what would happen should I fail. Should I disqualify myself. I've seen it happen. And I've seen the damage it does to churches. This is why we take this office so seriously. This is why, although we're continually praying for God to add to the eldership, right now, it's just me and Joe. Because we're not going to jump into anything that is going to damage the church. We're not going to push someone into an office that they are not ready for. We are going to go slow. We are going to wait. We are going to allow God to raise up the men that He sees fit to raise up. 
And this, brothers and sisters, comes out of hearts that love you and are desirous of protecting you and guarding you. Because that's the ministry that God has given to us. Leaders are not determined by popularity. They must be the kind of men that Paul describes here. And the church must recognize who they are. But before we come to the Lord's table, if you'll bear with me just a moment, let me say one more thing. There is nothing said here by Paul in regard to elders which should not be true of every child of God. This should not be something unique. Aside from the gift of teaching, everything else is a character trait. It is that high standard to which we are all called. Now, we're all in process. So don't take this as a condemnation. Joe and I will both readily tell you there was a time in our lives when we were not yet qualified for this office. But that's the goal. To be men and women of God characterized by these traits. Pray for us as we pray for you that together God might move our church in that direction so that day by day, week by week, we might become more fully conformed to what Paul has described in this passage. Father, do this. Do this for us, Father. Father, I pray for my brother and I that You would keep us faithful that we might not do damage to Your people, but that we might be a blessing to them. And Father, I pray for our church, for each one of us who have been taken hold of by Christ. Father, move us ahead. Sanctify us. Make these qualifications, these traits, a reality in our lives. And we will give You thanks, Father, for You are good. In Jesus' name, Amen.